This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. A few episodes ago, we talked to Joe DeNorcia, the mushroom farmer turned rooftop media specialist. Not media like podcasting, but media like a physical thing that is used to grow stuff on a roof. Well, today we're going to meet one of Joe's customers, the Brooklyn Grange. Each of our farms has over a million pounds of soil on it. The team at Brooklyn Grange is buying a lot of soil because they run the world's largest rooftop soil farms spread across three huge roofs in New York City. They just opened their third location this summer. In other words, they are growing. Now, I assume I don't have to tell you that making a living farming is not easy. Now, making a living farming when you live in New York City? As a native New Yorker, I thought that must be impossible. This is The Passion Economy. I'm Adam Davidson. Today, we're talking to three people, the co-founders of the Brooklyn Grange. My name's Ben Flanner. I am a co-founder and CEO of Brooklyn Grange. My name's Gwen Chance, and I am the chief creative officer at Brooklyn Grange. I'm Anastasia Kolplakias, and I'm a co-founder and chief operating officer of Brooklyn Grange. The three of them are very cool. They look like they just came back from an incredible hiking adventure in the Pacific Northwest, not the sort of precious twee Brooklyn hipsters that people might imagine they look like. I mean, honestly, hipsters wish they were these guys. Hiking boots, dirt on their jeans. Anastasia came with a big bag of fresh onions that we needed her to keep outside because they stank up the studio. But they live in New York City and do all their outdoor farming in New York City. Anyhow, I digress. The real question is how did they turn a kind of crazy idea into a thriving, growing business? Especially considering the fact that not one of them were farmers. Well, as we do every episode, let's start by looking back. Yeah, I grew up outside Milwaukee in a suburban area. Farming wasn't at all part of my life. So how, how do you go from being a suburban kid to a farmer? A couple steps. <laughs> Studied industrial engineering at University of Wisconsin and moved out to New York in 2004, basically seeking a job, an adventure in the city. And I worked at a consulting firm for a few years. And that was one of the first experiences 
I was staffed at a project in Australia and worked at a winery doing an activity-based costing, sort of a efficiency project for about four months. So you were like more like a cost accountant type job? Is that, that type of role, yeah. So in, nothing to do moment. with agriculture, just you could have gone to an aluminum extrusion exactly. manufacturer, it didn't... Just business principles, yeah. yeah. And I was very much just learning them too because I was just barely out of college too. So you just happened to get this assignment at a winery? Yeah. And I was excited to go travel to Australia and whatnot. Yeah. yeah. Was it a big, one of the big Australian industrial wineries? One of the larger ones, maybe a few hundred million dollars of revenue, I think. And they had over a hundred different SKUs. So they had a lot of complexity. They were buying grapes, growing their own, sourcing them, buying juice, selling juice, all different things. And so that awoke an interest in... Yeah, and largely also sort of seeing the viticultural operation. And that was part of the project too, which was starting to understand the complexity of the actual growing and the long lead times, for example, trying to catch up with trends or predict trends. You plant Sauvignon Blanc grapes or something like with maybe a five to 10 year lead time before your, your yields are like where you want them to be, but you're trying to anticipate... What are we going to want in the future and whatnot? But I kind of felt myself becoming a little bit envious of some of the growers' jobs and also the environment that they were working in and just became very interested in that. So was it that there was a business opportunity that was exciting or is it more like, boy, I'd like to be outside and with the greens? And At that point, it was very much that lifestyle. I want to get away from the computer. I need better circulation in my body or at least not to be at the computer all day long. And uh, came back to the New York and continued to think about farming a lot. And I think it was another year or two before I made the decision that I wanted to quit working at a desk and become a farmer. Which is what he did. Some things happened in between, but long story short, he reads this article about a guy in Soho who is growing stuff on a roof. It's not a farm, just a small usable space with some shrubs and stuff. And Ben reaches out to him, says, what would this look like if we did something bigger, bolder? You know, started a farm on a roof in New York City. And the guy says, you know what? I've been wondering the same thing. Let's figure this out. And so they start Eagle Street Farm. It was very much a critical opportunity and also prototype for us to start figuring out the numbers and to figure out, is this scalable? Could this be a business? How much revenue does it generate? And what if we doubled it or tripled it or quintupled it? At what point could we be generating the types of numbers to support some jobs? And just how will it work? And is it worth even continuing to think about this dream. Right. Because, I mean, it, in New York City, 6,000 square feet sounds like a lot. But if you're a farmer right, right. in farmland, it's, uh, it's, it's barely a An eighth of an garden. acre or something yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah. So what we, that summer, I kept really careful track of everything we planted, how much area it was in, and then what the sales were from it. And it was a huge success sort of on the, the cultural side and the less quantifiable side in that, Hordes of volunteers would show up. Everybody was interested in it. The chefs wanted it. The food tasted good. Luckily, we had a market that tons of people would come to, and, and it generated a lot of interest, both domestic and international. So it felt good. But of course, there's more to it than that. And at the end of the year, we put together all the numbers, and we kind of put together a, a waterfall and said, well, what if we grew some smarter crops? What if we got an earlier jump on the season? What if we figured out some other challenges this is what we could make per square foot. And then we put that into our business plan and then basically figured that we needed an acre. 
Meanwhile, in another corner of Brooklyn, Gwen and Anastasia are hatching plans of their own. Gwen is from Massachusetts, the daughter of hippies, her word, not mine. We always had a veggie garden and flowers and compost. Lots of environmental education at home. And also kind of growing up as a kid in the 80s and 90s, I think there was a lot of like pro-environmental propaganda on TV. So it was like kind of cool to recycle. And I watched Captain Planet. Gwen was in the nonprofit world. She went and worked in Cambodia after school, mostly doing work dealing with health and women's empowerment. When she got back to the States, she landed a job working on a sustainable food campaign in New York City. And doing that work, she learned a lot of things about food systems that really upset her. It was a dark, depressing thing to just spend her days thinking about. She wanted to do something. So she quit. I went on a road trip. I lived in Alaska for the summer. I visited a lot of farms. I grew more vegetables. And then when I came back to Brooklyn, I started making pizza for a living. And Where? <laughs> first at a little restaurant in Prospect Heights called Amarina, a little family business. It's great, still there. And then at Roberta's. Now, in addition to making just really good pizza, Roberta's is this cultural center in New York. France in the early aughts of the French Revolution had salons. The Brits birthed the Age of Enlightenment in coffee houses. Beatniks had San Remo Cafe in Greenwich Village. Brooklyn, post-economic crash, had Roberta's. It was 2008, 2009, and it was kind of the height of the financial meltdown and also the makers movement. Like there was this really cool thing happening all over Brooklyn where you had young people who had gotten these really fancy educations coming to Brooklyn and deciding that they wanted to be carpenters and- Beef jerky entrepreneurs. And beef jerky <laughs> entrepreneurs yeah. and fishmongers and make hooch in their bathtub, whatever it was. Everybody, I think, was taking this moment to reevaluate what they wanted to do with their lives, and they decided, I want to make something with my hands. We were all coming to Roberta's, not while I was working there, but we were all coming to Roberta's for the same thing, to scratch the same itch, which was to really connect with this maker's scene and to talk about urban agriculture and figure out ways to grow things together. So that's Gwen. But why was Anastasia there, born and bred in Manhattan, in Greenwich Village as far from a tree as anyone I've ever met? The extent of my agricultural upbringing was, a, you know, the lima bean assignment we got in second grade to sprout lima beans on your windowsill. You know, I arrived at farming by following my appetite. Anastasia did grow up in a foodie household. She loved to cook, but she didn't want to be a chef. She wanted to be a journalist. So in college, she starts writing for magazines. But then... So I graduated college in 2005, and I emailed all the editors who I'd interned for and done favors for and who promised me, when you graduate, we're going to get you an amazing job. And they emailed me back their resumes and said, if you find a job, will you pass my resume along because we're folding? And it was a shock. I was totally unprepared for that. And I ended up like so many uh, sort of, you know, struggling New Yorkers do in the restaurant industry. 
And I ended up working for a restaurateur winemaker in his office as his personal assistant, his executive assistant, sometimes his <laughs> lawyer, sometimes his business manager. And I learned a ton from him about how to run a business. But I also got to spend a lot of time with his chefs. And there were some really incredible men and women in that group who were some of the earliest sort of farm-to-table folks. At that point, I was really, I wanted to get back into writing, but I wanted to write about food politics. And so I started following around some buddies of mine who opened a restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn, called Roberta's. And uh, they were press shy, and everybody wanted this story on this weird pizzeria that had popped up in an industrial stretch of Bushwick. And I thought, I've got the inside scoop. I'm going to write this article, and it's going to be my entry back into the magazine world. So I got a little digital recorder, and I started following them around. And they were talking about building gardens on top of these shipping containers in their backyard that housed Heritage Radio Network, food, internet, talk, radio station. But, you know, these guys were, they're kind of cowboys. They had no plan. So it's like, where are you going to get the soil, and how are you going to get it up there? And they didn't, you know, they were like, oh, we'll figure it out, we'll figure it out. And I'm, you know... I'm a planner. <laughs> it made me very nervous not having a plan. So next thing you know, I've abandoned the digital recorder. I'm, you know, helping to organize this massive soil hall up to the gardens. And we built these things. And, you know, in my sort of whole academic upbringing of observing, analyzing, and commenting on things, I realized I'd never actually executed a project like this. And it was incredibly satisfying. And I was just completely smitten and then very quickly realized that we didn't actually know how to grow anything. And it was around that time that I reconnected with Gwen, who was living in the neighborhood, and kind of begged for her help. I knew she had a green thumb. I'd been over to their, her and her now husband's apartment and seen all their plants. And uh, I said, hey, you know plants. Can you help us? And uh, if memory serves, Gwen said, uh, I don't work for free. <laughs> um, but we peeled her off from her job down in Prospect Heights. They ultimately convinced her to come aboard as a pizzaiola there, and then she would write me little like task lists to execute with my little tiny army of volunteers that I would bring in on the weekend. And and so we, we were gardening in these tiny little shipping containers, and that's when I saw a New York Magazine article about Ben. And uh, I emailed him, and I think he was trying to probably pick up Roberta's as a sales account because he emailed right away. And uh, we traded tours. So there it is. After all that, after Australia, after Cambodia, after writing for El Girl magazine, the three of them end up around a table at Roberta's. And a seed is planted. It's the start of what will become not only an innovative, groundbreaking farm, but an innovative, groundbreaking business. More after the break. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. 
Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. What did they say that day that led these three crazy kids to think they could build something so bold? Pretty practical stuff, it turns out. There was an army tent in the backyard. Of Roberta's? Of Roberta's. And I specifically remember sitting in the army tent around a picnic table with these guys talking about, okay, if if Ben has figured out he can make enough money off of a 30,000-square-foot roof to support himself for a season and pay rent and pay the water bill or all of the other little costs, then, like, maybe we can actually make this work. And then then we thought, oh, and we do some photo shoots and maybe a couple dinners and and we can kind of patch together a, a budget. And then the question was, where's the roof? We need to find a roof. And so we all went out and pounded the pavement and asked around. And But was it literally like you went to dinner not knowing you were going to do a business together and at the end of the dinner you were going to do We'd kind of talked about it here and there and then we were like, we should all meet. Yeah, we conversations did. of Roberta's tended to sort of <laughs> drag on. a lot on. of beer involved. Probably too late into the night. But uh, yeah, and I think that really was... What it came down to is sort of like, I remember kind of it being a little bit of a gut check moment where it was like, wait, are you serious about this though? Like, would you actually have this conversation in the sober light of day? Like, we should we really? We started having meetings and I think they were pretty frequent, if I recall, maybe once a week. And we just kept on going down the list of everything. Um, do we need to start up an operating agreement? Who knows a lawyer? Oh yeah, Anastasia's friend could do some pro bono work to at least get us set up as an LLC and I was building the business plan. And I remember Gwen went out and... Uh, we always took the business plan with us because it had photos and a little bit of credibility. But remember, you guys went out looking at spaces and we were emailing everybody that we knew that was in real estate or that knew anybody that had property, spreading the word that we were looking for rooftop spaces. And um, all these inquiries started coming in. At the same time, we were also trying to raise money and we were going to events. I was going to panels and speaking as much as possible, spreading the word, sort of collecting this small cadre of people that were sort of circling the wagons that wanted to see, okay, but where's the lease? <laughs> like, Where's your space before I write you a check? And how's the money going to work? What's the ownership? What's the dilution? What's the valuation? We were doing it all in tandem, but pretty quickly too, over the course of about six months to when we launched the, yeah, we the first really... space. We dug in. Maybe didn't quite. Almost exactly ten years ago. Yeah, Yeah, it was like August, September, two thousand nine. We like bought the URL and started having fundraisers, and then by May the following year, we were building the farm. So it was really like a six month startup. It was great. If we hadn't gone so fast, I don't know if we ever would have done it because. We really needed that momentum. It took a lot of work and we kind of had nothing to lose by walking away. So at a certain point, I remember we had this great roof that was really perfect and we were very excited about it. And then the landlord kind of backed out at the last minute and it was really like soul crushing. 
And there was a moment where we were like, do we just give up now? It was rent. Remember, we were at a standstill on the rent price. Yeah, the landlord, yeah. he basically, he said he wanted a lot more rent than we could pay. But wait, can we just go back to the fact that this was late 2009 when yeah. people were still very much recovering from the crash and we raised $200,000 and like, yeah, you know, I, we had a couple fundraisers. We did a Kickstarter campaign back when Kickstarter was like, you know, you can still find it online and there's no description of the project. It's just explaining what Kickstarter is because people <laughs> didn't know back right. then. It's like, it's a crowdfunding. <laughs> and I didn't do much of the private equity raise back then because I didn't know very many wealthy people, but Ben did a lot of the early pitches and really networked hard. And I mean, the fact that <laughs> you got anyone to write us a check in late 2009 is still kind of astounds me. We also, I don't even think we had the whole amount in the bank when we started the farm. Actually, <laughs> Joe DeNorsha. Nope. Like on a, I signed a personal guarantee and Joe DeNorsha extended us at least 50% credit till the middle of the summer on the rest of the soil bill. And around um, maybe July or August, we actually filled up the rest of the equity or, quote, startup equity, even though we installed the farm in May. We had already started And up. we paid back the soil <laughs> at that point. They made that seem a little easier than it was, I think. First of all, the right roof to put a farm on, it's hard to find. We've really developed a keen eye for this now, too. It's You need not just a big roof, but you need a strong roof. You need it to have elevators. You need it to be waterproof. It needs to have parapet walls around the edge. And pretty much every big roof in the city is covered with air conditioners and other junk. Second, Ben did something with his prototype farm at Eagle Street that a lot of people, and probably a lot of people trying their hand at farming, never do. The most important crop that he harvested at that farm was data. I mean, we could not we could not have put together our early business plan without the, the sort of incredible detail that he was yielding from just looking at every aspect of, you know, what, all right, what is profitable, what is not. So that was really essential component of all of this. And, and I think if yeah. nothing else, it helped convince the landlords. Yeah. And, <laughs> and the investors and everybody else that were all these pieces that had to fit together to create this sort of out-of-the-box thing, if nothing else, just to prove we were doing the hard work and the homework behind the scenes to make it as legit as possible. Remember, Ben had already determined that they couldn't be profitable with less than an acre. And profit was really important to all three of them. When we started this business, we were really clear, all, the three of us and our two co-founding friends, Chris and Brandon, who are two of the owners of Roberta's, we all really shared this vision of starting a business. It wasn't a nonprofit. There was already a very robust and successful nonprofit urban agriculture sector in New York. We wanted to start a business and we really wanted to test out a sustainable, long-term urban agriculture model. And this, of course, is why we wanted to talk to the team at Brooklyn Grange, because they did figure out a long-term model for for-profit urban agriculture. First off, produce. They bring in a fair amount of money this way, namely because of all that number crunching they do. It's how they know what to grow, how much to grow. We're growing vegetables. We're selling them. We sell to restaurants. We sell at the farmer's market. We have a CSA program where people get vegetables every week throughout the season. Salad greens is definitely our big cash crop. It probably covers about 50% of the farm. But we really like to keep it diverse because we're selling, again, to people at the farmer's market and 
if you walked up to a farm stand at the farmer's market and they only had salad greens, it wouldn't be very exciting for you. But salad greens are a moneymaker. I think of them as, I don't know anything, but I think of them as a low <laughs> Yeah, they cost, grow fast. They're relatively easy to manage if you know how to, what you're doing. And our farmers are incredibly skilled. There's a lot of training that goes into our farm team. And Ben's really developed some amazing methods over the years for helping to prevent weeds and keep the soil healthy. We have great seed mixes that we work with. But in addition to being, you know, a high yield, high value, quick turnaround crop, which is pretty crucial when you're farming in a really small space, they're also a really low waste crop. So we've really dialed in exactly how many square feet we need to yield X numbers of pounds. So if you have a chef, a New York City chef, they want, you know, say they've got a standing order and we deliver twice a week, which is a luxury that we can offer because we're so close to our consumer. We're not coming down from upstate. And that's important because New York City chefs have small New York City kitchens, small New York City walk-ins. They can't fit a week's worth of produce in their fridge. So two weekly deliveries of something super perishable like salad greens is pretty clutch. And, you know, if a chef has a standing order, you know, 15 pounds on Tuesday, 20 pounds on Friday, we know exactly how many square feet we need to grow to deliver that quantity. And that allows us to really be precise with our plantings. Yeah, just I'll also add that another reason why we grow a lot of salad greens and arugula is because there's so much demand for it. Because people really like it and there is value to have the real short supply chain, especially with those more perishable crops. But we knew going into it that there's no such thing as getting rich off of a small organic farm. It's just not something that anyone's ever been able to do. And that was never really the goal. And the way to really make it profitable, we found, was by diversifying and, and really leveraging the brand and the location and the kind of inspiration and innovation that comes with it. And this is where things get interesting. A lot of farmers stop at farming. Now, the Brooklyn Grange team, like Gwen said, they realized pretty early on that produce wasn't going to be enough on its own. They maybe would have been able to turn a profit, but not enough to really grow into a sustainable business, to hire staff, to start a second and third location. They had to diversify their revenue streams. Through our events department, we're hosting weddings and dinner parties. We do ticketed events. We do a lot of private events for media companies and corporations, corporate retreats. Anastasia can elaborate. Yeah, our events program started as a couple farm dinners with our friends. At ben had connected with this restaurant, Bobo, and Bobo was doing farm dinners called Plate to Gate at Rural Farms. And they said, what do you think about doing one on your roof? And I'll never forget the first couple dinners were like served on top of boards that we'd (laughs) set out on these steel girders that were down on the west end of the farm. And people just loved being up there. And it was very apparent very quickly that, you know, look, we're in a city of 8 million people, we're never going to feed every mouth with, through you know, rooftop farming. This idea that urban farms can feed entire cities is just, I think, wishful thinking. You know, Everybody wants a panacea to this, the ills that, of our food system, but this was really not going to be solved by urban farming. So, so what's the point of putting a farm then in a city, you know, spending all the money to haul this soil up to the roof when there's perfectly good soil you know, an hour's drive out, outside? the five boroughs. And really the the point is to engage people. 
So we really look at our events program as, you know, how many different ways can we engage people? And you've got your composters coming to the compost workshop. You know, we're making natural dyes and doing natural dye workshops. We've got yoga on Monday nights. And then we've got, you know, dinners for the, the folks who are not interested in getting their hands dirty. You know, we really, we wanted to sort of get people to question what their idea of a farm looked like. And I think that, you know, our farms really do that. They're this sort of visual oxymoron of skyline and this pastoral field. Because um, right. you can see the Empire State Building. You can see oh, every yeah. the whole Manhattan skyline. You can see planes flying over the whole deal from both farms that I've been to. Yet you see them across. It's crazy. Like there's this beautiful, lush... It's field odd. that you're looking, you know, it's a very odd feeling. It's exciting. Yeah, it's not uncommon to have like a siren going by on the BQE and then like crickets. In case you're wondering how they're convincing people to have their weddings on a roof in the middle of Brooklyn, that's how. These are some of the best views in the world. I've been up there. It's gorgeous. The New York City skyline is right to your west. The sun setting behind. It's surrounded by sunflowers and lettuce. It's spectacular. So they're selling produce. They're making money off events. And... Our third revenue stream is design build. So in 2012, we had become pretty well established. We had built our second farm and we got great press because rooftop farms are weird and they get good press. And people started coming to us saying, hey, I want a little rooftop farm on my restaurant or on my townhouse. And we had this kind of interesting niche where we we were really specialized and skilled at designing and building small scale farms throughout the city. So we just started to meet demand at first, and then we more actively expanded our, our department to address other things that we were interested in, really. So at first it was like small vegetable gardens and green roofs, and then we would like take on somebody's backyard project, and then we would take on maybe their indoor plants and their green walls. And now we have a pretty sizable design-build department where we're, we're servicing dozens of garden clients throughout the city. And then we counted it recently. I think we've built 40 green roofs throughout the city wow. at this point. So it's... And are those all really, producing vegetables and stuff? Or those, no. some of those are just cosmetic? Yeah, groups, it all so. started with building vegetable gardens for people. And then it kind of evolved into building anything that involves soil and plants. And we really see it as a great way for us to kind of enhance our environmental mission. We're a business that's really committed to serving the environment and our local community in addition to just making money. So this is a great way for us to kind of expand green space throughout the city without having to build a new farm every year, which takes a lot of time and, and energy. Because that's what I was trying to figure out. You know, this show is called The Passion Economy, and we talk about businesses that aren't trying to be a huge scale business, but more trying to have an intimate relationship with some audience that values what they want. And I was just trying to think, like, do you have three businesses or do you have one business that kind of has three arms to it? Because it, for a young business, I would be a little nervous having three different areas. Like, you can lose focus. You can, it's, 
I would think like the optimal events team may not also be the optimal design build team and may not also be the optimal farm team. And then are there conflicts there? But then they all share this kind of mission-driven goal. And is that the focus? And then this just happens to be the three ways it's manifest. I don't know. What do you, you nodded when I said focus is a concern. Is that yeah, it's a really interesting question and we should all chip in on it, but it's something that we think about and actively manage practically on a daily basis because we have these three significant revenue streams that are all really integral to our business. And of course, the farm is the first and sort of the anchor in terms of marketing and branding. And yes, I totally agree that to many entrepreneurs that would sound like a nightmare to have three different specialties None of which are massive revenue streams, you know, that make a huge, you know, substantial business on its own. But I think one of the reasons why it's worked well for us is because we have kept that sort of cohesion and that synergy together between the departments. So all the departments feel like they're on the same team. And we have many people that are allocated only in one single department, like our director of events. I I still remember when we hired her and took this on as this overhead. It's like, you're an events person. You're not also a farmer. You don't have to get up at 5 a.m. the morning after the event. You can singularly focus on this one thing and become really good at it. And the same thing with the farmers. uh, When that moment happened, the farmers no longer had to stay late at the events and whatnot. So And then when Gwen took over the design and build business, it was the same thing. It was like pretty much a singular focus. But then at the same time, we all help each other. And there's like this, you know, our office shares duties, you know, with bill collection and invoicing and whatnot. And our CFO keeps an eye on everything together. So I think it's kind of an art to keep it cohesive and also to keep crossing between marketing, branding, strategy, between all thoughts and the people together. We're very fortunate that we have very complementary but very different skill sets, very different things that drew us to what what we're doing. And of course, like any, you know, startup, when we launched this business, we all did everything. I remember we didn't have a walk in everything (laughs) and we did it together because we were the only ones. I mean, we, we didn't have a walk in cooler. So for our Sunday market, we would just get to the farm early, early Sunday morning, harvest, throw everything in the back of Gwen's pickup truck, which was not a good vehicle for moving vegetables, by the way, just leaves flying out of the back. (laughs) Uh, We'd lose half our harvest on the drive over and then we'd stand on the sidewalk and sell vegetables all day, the three of us. And so... You know, I think we all, we've always thought of this as one business and we've always thought of the work that we do as all sort of contributing to this one goal of making this business work. And then because the department sort of grew out of our own specialties and our, and the approaches that each of us takes to thinking about the farm as a solution to this challenge, right? The challenge being that urban dwellers are alienated from food production and from nature. And how do we fix that? And we all really do take different approaches to it. You know, Ben is a farmer, but he's also, you know, he's a numbers guy. He's a very data-driven farmer. And that's been really crucial to the financial success of this business. Gwen's a builder. She's an environmentalist. And she's creating ecosystems that, you know, are similar to what would exist in this city if we weren't here having this space. And I'm a, I'm a people person, I'm a communicator, you know, and I love, I love being able to bring people into our space to show them and 
inspire them and say, look, if we can make this crazy idea work, then whatever crazy ideas floating around in your head is workable too. This is what I like so much about this crew. They did make a crazy idea work. They are making money in a field that is so impossible to make money in, almost nobody has even thought about it. And I think Anastasia is right. You can too. That's after the break. There's an idea I talk about a lot on the passion economy. It's the idea that to get the best out of the 21st century economy, you have to take the best of the 19th and the best of the 20th century and combine them. By that, I usually mean in the 19th century, people made products and did services for a narrow group of people right around where they were, where their factory was, where their farm was, where they were. And they knew their customers intimately but they didn't have scale. They couldn't reach people around the world or even a few counties over. Then the 20th century is all about massive scale, reaching people all over the world, but with the same mediocre products that don't hit their intimate needs. The 21st century economy, the passion economy, allows people to take something that they're passionate about, something intimate and special, and find people all over the world who crave that precise thing. And I can't think of a more precisely accurate example than the Brooklyn Grange. Of course, up until the 19th century, for most of human history since the dawn of agriculture, Most people alive spent most of their days farming to make enough food for themselves and maybe a tiny bit left over to sell in a local market. Then in the 20th century, we had the massive industrialization of our global food supply chain with all the good and the bad that that implies. And here's the Brooklyn Grange. In a sense, they're going back to the 19th century. This is not thousands of acres of automated farming using GPS-driven tractors. This is real, back-breaking, actual old-time farming on small farms. And there's a deep intimacy with their customers. They know precisely what their customers want to eat and buy, how much they'll pay for them, how long it takes to grow the things that their customers want. But then there's that 20th and 21st century aspect because... What they really are doing is using data, using modern marketing, using all the tools of the 21st century to zero in on precisely the people who most want what they have to give. And I can't imagine a better example of the passion economy. But it takes a lot of thought and a lot of work. We've seen a lot of startups come and go to in New York and really all around the world and the country People pop up all the time and they'll ask us for advice. They'll say, hey, I've got this idea. I want to start this business where I pay people rent to grow vegetables in their backyards and I'll sell vegetables and I'm going to get rich. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grow to 50 cities in five years. And we've been around long enough so that we can say, oh, you know, we know some people who did that a few years ago and they tried it and it didn't work for this reason or that reason. And, and people will say, I want to start a rooftop farm just like yours. My uncle has a building in D.C. and the the roof's 5,000 square feet. It's perfect. And we have to give them the bad news too. And we try not to be bummers. We try not to make people feel bad about entering into this business, but we're also realists. And the true story of our business is that we've worked very hard to get where we are. And it's been 
10 years of being very crafty and savvy and working together and putting in long hours and making sacrifices here and there and having to negotiate special deals and fight back every time we get a bill that we think might be 10% higher than it should be. And it's exhausting, but it's paid off. And I think we're in a really great place as a business right now. We're growing very quickly, but we're steady and we're, we're smart about it. And we're not trying to take on too much. We know when to say no. Are you building asset value that you can then theoretically, if you choose to you know, exit, have some payday down the road? You know, we just went through this capital raise and it was interesting. I did a lot of investor pitches. Um, we all did. And there were a couple of times that I was pitching alongside small food brands that positioned themselves as the next Sir Kensington's mayonnaise. It's all I heard was we're the next Sir Kensington's mayonnaise. It's a mayonnaise brand that started, a small artisanal brand that started. That's our motto at the podcast company. The next, the next the, Sir the Kensington's, Kensington's mayonnaise podcast. podcast. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, yeah. this, this is the story of that company is, you know, they sold to Unilever. And to me, the idea that entrepreneurs are pitching investors on, we're starting this business with the express intention of selling this business. I mean, that's the death of entrepreneurship. So, you know, the fact that we started this business with the express intention of running this business, we signed 20 year leases. This is a business that's built on creating value through intentional choices. And then, you know, that value has a real financial quantitative dollar amount assigned to it. And the plan is to pay our investors back through distributions over time is the answer to the question. So you that is, asked. so you are building <laughs> yeah. like, and then you would accumulate some amount, but not some insane amount, ideally if everything goes well. So without, you know, showing me your bank account, like, as economists would say, are you consuming your potential earnings through, you know, having a satisfying job that pays less? And then you're taking a lifetime cut in pay in order to do something you love. You said, I think the key word and what you just said was satisfying. It's, we all left better paying careers to do this. And I think if we had stuck with what we were doing a decade ago, instead of starting this business, we would all be making significantly more money than we are now. And we live in this world today where everybody's trying to start a tech business or a food startup or whatever, and the goal from day one is, how are we gonna sell this thing to Jeff Bezos? Or how are we gonna exit and be billionaires before we're 40? And that, that is not the goal for us. We are a very different type of startup. And we're not a startup anymore. We've been around for a decade, so. Can I say one other thing about how we've evolved is also that in the course of the decade that we've been running this business, that philosophy has evolved a lot because we're all 10 years older as well. We were, we're not in our 20s anymore. And also that was a different time in 2009 when we met in 2010 when we fully launched the business just still kind of reeling from the recession, asking these questions like, are we going to be using oil in 10 years? And the maker economy, as Gwen was talking about, seemed like it was so exciting to everybody. And, uh, you know, I can speak for myself that when I left my office job, the money, I didn't even think twice about it. It was just 100%. The perspective I had on the world at that point was this is without a doubt the journey that I would prefer to go down at this point of my life. 
But as we've evolved and also developed our workforce, and this is not just us, but our entire full-time staff and part-time staff and everybody that works for us, is of course that as we evolve and mature, that, that money is relevant. And we've adjusted our business decisions. We've adjusted many aspects of our business in order to carve out slightly higher incomes over the years and to make it sustainable because we have realized that too. If you're just working your tail off and you're making peanuts, that does get old. The Passion Economy is a three Uncanny Four production. It's hosted by me, Adam Davidson, and produced by Lena Richards. Our music is composed and performed by Casey Halford. Our sound engineer is Gene Montalvo. Our executive producer is Laura Mayer. 